bought our first unit in Sydney. Um, that was uh, in Lakemba in Sydney. Um, yeah, we picked that one up for a couple hundred thousand back then. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we talk to four-time developer Alan Castorina. We hear about his adventures as a pilot and how he saved up to buy his first property for just a couple hundred thousand dollars. Once he started acquiring properties, he couldn't stop. And we also hear about his worst investment that took 18 weeks to settle. Alan Castorina comes from a small town in northern Queensland. He ventured into a few different industries like machinery and aviation before building a successful property development business with his wife. I'm a property developer full-time. Um, we do renovations and land subdivisions here in Brisbane. Um, we've been doing full-time this full-time for four years now um, and, and uh, we're getting um, we're building our business up. We've, we've built a business up to the point now we've got uh, about four or five staff and um, yeah, we're enjoying it. My wife, uh, Michelle, she's part of the team and she loves looking after the renovations, um, you know, the, the, the project management part of it and you know, I do the acquisitions, financing and, and the sales. Let's talk a little bit about maybe your day to day, you know, what are you currently doing at the moment every day? What's your you know, typical day look like in the life of Alan's development journey? I get up about half past five, six and um, majority of my day is probably, you could probably, it probably look like uh, staff, uh, looking after my staff, some staff training um, and it's 80% of its acquisitions. So I look after, I'm looking for new pipeline stock to bring in because that's probably the hardest part of the, the whole um, the model. Um, and then I would, you know, project management. So if there's some subdivisions going, which I've got one at the moment, so it's a matter of just looking after that, making sure the team, all the consultants are doing their thing, paying the bills because as soon as you stop paying a bill, then <laughs> everything stops. Um, and then it's networking, networking with agents, ringing people up, um, going to see sites. Um, yeah, so that's my day. And then, um, you know, and I'll, I'll try and finish up about five, which doesn't, always happen and I'll go to the gym four or five times a week, get a bit of um, the other parts of my body working. So, um, yeah, yeah. and then I'll, I'll, I'll usually work six days a week, have one day off, but it's I don't call it work. It's uh, To me, it's fun. You know, it's, I'm passionate about it. Yeah, so I like doing it. Mm. Castorina always had a go-getter attitude. He had big dreams and the motivation to make them happen at such a young age. I grew up in a little town called Ingham. North Queensland, just north of Townsville. It's a, a basically a, a cane farm industry orientated uh, town, uh, mostly Italian community. So I grew up with all the good foods and wines, etc. And um, yeah, so my my childhood dream. I remember I was in grade seven at the time. I wanted to be a pilot, an airline pilot, and um, that's what I did. I ended up leaving school, learning how to fly planes and uh, become a flying instructor. Uh, did all that, uh, you know, flew most of southeast Queensland and New South Wales 
um, and then I basically did that for 10 years and um, quit. I landed a job with an airline and I had enough of flying out of living in suitcases and motels and I, I quit. And then I was always interest, interested in, in, in machinery. Um, uh, I liked operating things, so I went and worked in industry after that. Um, but always had a had a passion for wealth because my father was always into shares. He'd be studying, he'd open his notebook out and study the share market, and I'd always had that 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 passion for wealth. So I was always interested in reading books and um, yeah, things like that. And I, I landed um, some books on my desk once. It was a Think and Grow Rich. Funny enough, everyone says Think and Grow Rich. Um, and that sort of led into the led into the mindset thing. Um, so I ended up getting a job in my wife and I basically left Ingham basically when my my, my little fellow was born back in uh, two thousand just after two thousand two for a new job in Central Queensland and um, this job gave me the opportunity to because it was shift work I had a lot of time on my hands so I started reading a lot of books. And getting into property, property became a really uh, interesting subject for me. So that's where I sort of got into it, yeah. His childhood sounds almost too good to be true. Filled with picturesque scenery, adrenaline pumping activities and winding local rivers. He never had the chance to be bored. It's a pretty laid back town. Um, we've, we used to have fun doing just about anything there was any no computers back then in the 70s um you know we would you know have fun just going down the creek make fishing jumping into the into the you know the, the local river where all the crocs were we found out now there's heaps of crocs in the rivers we used to jump into <laughs> and um but yeah they, we, we'd never seen them so we were none the wiser but i'm sure they were there um i used to like fishing and yeah, you because know, that was uh, uh, right next to the, the the ocean. Really good fishing there. Um, yeah, and so cane farm, so a lot of motorbike riding. You know, driving. You know, we, we drove well, well uh, before we were allowed to get licenses. So in the cane paddocks, and it got up to a lot of mischief. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a good little laid back town, and we um, and and funny enough. Um, it's rare to say this, but my friends that I went to school with, I'm still good friends with them now, and the whole class is the same class that we had right back when we were children. So it was really close, close-knit community. And, um, yeah, we still meet up to this day. Although he was surrounded by farms, his parents worked in different industries. Well, my parents were in retail, so they, my father and mother used to run, um, uh, it's like a... a an alcohol distribution like a uh, Forex and and Carlton used to have all the alcohol there and they used to distribute all the alcohol to the pubs and then they had a delicatessen. Um, but all my mates had farms. So that's where I got to go and shoot rifles and drive tractors and all that sort of stuff, yeah. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to admit, I've never shot a rifle before. I've held one in my hand. It's heavy, that thing. So, I don't know what age you were able to lift one of those things up. <laughs> no, they were good fun. Yeah, we used to have a lot of target practice with the local um, 
yeah, animals around there, kangaroos and whatever. So, yeah. Growing up in a small town means everything was within either walking or riding distance. Castorina would ride his bike to school every day. My school was um, probably about a 20-minute bike ride. Um, yeah, so it was across town. town was only like 3,000 people, so it's a very small town. And we lived on the other side of town. We used to drive, I used to drive a bike with my mate and go to school like that. Rain, hail or shine, there was no buses or anything. Mum and Dad worked, so they'd, they'd get up at five and go to work. They'd be at work before, long before I'd go to school. So we had to find our way there. Mm. And um, there was a local, yeah, there was two schools in town. If Castorina grew up in a small town surrounded by cane fields and isolated from the rest of the world, how did he become so passionate about aviation? My grandmother and I used to go down to Sydney and in Bellevue Hill, my uncle that I was talking to you about earlier, and we used to go visit him. And as a, like a, I was probably only eight or nine at the time um, when we used to fly down every Christmas. And I just got, I found this, this incredible machine I wanted, I wanted to drive. And you know, in those days, you were allowed at the front. He'd ask the flight attendant, can I go up the front for the landing? And they'd let you. So I'd sit in the jump seat. Back then they had 727s and um, 737s. And I'd, I'd go up the front nearly every every week, every week year that would go up to, uh, down to Sydney. And um, I said, this is what I want to do. And, um, yeah, so I, I just put my head down and said, well, I need to pass my exams, get some good marks to do this. And I started that. Dream back in, yeah, probably grade seven when I was at school. So, With his pilot's license in one hand and the yoke in the other, Castorina was at the beginning of all his dreams coming true. I started out in Sydney. I moved to Sydney straight after school, moved into a, a, a little old apartment on my own. So that was quite daunting at the time, um, you know, straight into flight school. Um, I, I actually learned to fly before I left school, actually, because I, I got to know a lot of people in the in the town that had aircraft, and I used to just hang around the airport on the weekends, or just go there and watch them strip planes and in the in the in the hangar. And then they could see that I had passion, so they took me up. And then eventually, um, I, I got to know a few people. I got my solo before I left school, and. Um, so I, I knew well before I left school that that's what I wanted to do. And uh, so then mum and dad supported me and they said, all right, sounds like this is it. Let's go and find a flying school for you. And that was down in Sydney at the time. Um, yeah, but in answer to your question, what it was like um, as a pilot, it, it's, it's, you got to have a passion for it. It's really stressful at times because, of, I mean, the weather, the weather, when you're a commercial pilot, you have to go whether you like it or not. You know, um, you don't go when the airport's shut down, of course, with thunderstorms, but, you know, a really crappy day, you still got to take off, take your passengers, um, and it's 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 a lot of workload um, at times. And then and then also to um, keep up your, your currency and keep up all your, your um, endorsements and licence, you have to do regular checks. Um, yeah, so then, um, yeah, the, the actual 
you know, the, the, the actual week may look like uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday you're on and then you have Thursday off and you might have to fly Friday, Saturday, then you're off Sunday. So you, your, your week may be changing all the time. So you, it's not a routine and you might be flying from Sydney to Canberra one day and then Sydney to Melbourne the next and then stop in Brisbane the night after. So it's occasionally it's, uh, you know, you're not home. A lot, and and the what job that I was doing, it was I wasn't home a lot. I was I was sort of staying in Darwin for a week, coming back for a day, staying in Mount Isa for another couple of days, and then yeah, so I was all over the place. So I wasn't enjoying it after a while. So could understand why. Yes, that that's fair enough. And and it sounds like you're doing mostly domestic flights. Did you do any international flights? No, no, just domestic, yeah. It's, it's amazing how many domestic flights we have. I mean, uh, until Jetstar and all those cheaper airlines came in, obviously, it was all going back to, you know, Qantas and, and Ansett, wasn't it, back then? Ansett, yeah. And Australian, Australian and TAA, back when I started. TAA and Ansett, it was, yeah. Yeah, I haven't heard of TAO actually recently too. And then there was another one, I think Rex, Rex as well was more sort of the regional type of airlines. Seems like a lot of them have sort of closed a lot of their routes off because of. Yeah, actually, the regional airlines are the ones that first to fire up the, in the smaller aircraft. There's some mates of mine to, to this day that still have their jobs uh, with the smaller aircraft because uh, they're the ones that they could fill the planes up a lot quicker, and the regional routes started up. Yeah. Unfortunately, sometimes childhood dreams turn out to be adult nightmares. I like the flying aspect of it, but that was only a very small part of it. The, the whole job entailed a lot of other things, you know, like not being from away from, uh, not being home. Um, and there's, it's a stressful job too, but um, it mainly was here. Yeah, I, I just wasn't home at all. Castorina's talent doesn't stop at knowing how to fly a plane. He also knows how to operate high-level machinery and has always been interested in it. So, he took the next step in his life and pursued a new dream. Well, uh, from there I went um, in where I was living was a, is a sugar industry like I said before. So, I, I went and worked at a sugar mill. They had, um, I got interested in, in operating machinery. So, I landed a job there um, and it was only a sort of a fill-in job. At the time, I, I said, well, I'll just try it just to make ends meet and um, because I still haven't worked my direction, I've just I've just quit my lifetime dream, and now I was sort of in limbo. And I thought, well, I'll just do something to get the money. And and then I discovered that I didn't mind this job. It was quite good. Uh, it was interesting. You know, there was some big boilers, big steam uh, boilers there at the time. And I thought, well, this could be a a career. Um, um, whether it was long term or temporary, at that stage it didn't it didn't matter. Um, I was just feeling my ground, and then I ended up staying at the sugar mill there for a few years, and I got a quite a I got up the ladder, um, became a you know a senior operator, and uh, I ended up becoming um, a trainer and assessor for pressure equipment. So I was teaching guys how to um, operate steam equipment. And I used to go and teach at TAFE and do that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, and then that led me to um, move on to chasing a, a bigger 
uh, a better job because the, where I was living in that sugar mill is was sort of limited what I could do. So I said to my wife, Michelle, I said, let's go discovering uh, the rest of the Queensland, see if I can go and find a, a better job in the same field. And I had a few mates that had already left at the time and they they went down to central Queensland, a little place called Biloela, and there was another uh, there was a few industries there. There's uh, some um, all centered around mining, and so I went there for a drive with Michelle one Easter. And uh, a friend of mine said, um, "Come and have a look at where I'm working here." And I went and had a look. It was an ammonium nitrate plant, so they make the explosives for the coal mines. And um, I had all the qualifications at the time, and I'd, I had an interview with the boss. Because he said, come and have an interview with the boss. Uh, I wasn't ready for it. I was just going there for a holiday for a look. And um, and uh, nothing was said at the time. And I left, went back, and and they rang me up and said, you got a job if you want to start. And I had I had a t- couple of TAFE courses lined up with with the guys at work at back at the sugar mill. And I said, look, I can't. I'm committed. I want to. I want to. And I promised that I'd, I'd have these guys, I'd do these guys' courses, and um, I'd, if I can finish that to the end of the year, and then I'll I'll come out to do that job at Christmas time. So that's what we did. The that um, the guys uh, said, yeah, for sure, we'll, we'll let you stay there, that current work place, and come and join us. Um, so it was December. The 22nd, we shut the whole factory down at the sugar mill and then Shell and I packed our bags on the 23rd and landed in a new job on the Christmas Eve. On the- <laughs> so I started that new job and, yeah, it was um whirlwind uh, that, that year, that for sure. <laughs> yeah, that, that's great to hear another company being so understanding because it was quite a long wait, you know, many, many months before they could and Anything can happen. You could have changed jobs and decided I'll go somewhere else and that, but that's great that they waited for your commitment to come through. The fact that I said that I was committed to my previous job and I didn't want to let them down, they could see the benefit there. Um, yeah. yeah. So I opened the next chapter. So. His new job opened up more than one door. He began reading and that's when his property journey began. Yeah, well, it was with that following job. Um, I started reading, like I said before, I started reading a lot of books, property books. Um, I was a, I was actually, um, I'd done a lot of, which I didn't mention before, but I, I, I'd done an extensive amount of um, work study on trading. I was, I've been a trader for 15 years, trading futures and stock markets as well. Um, and I was doing that, and, and in those groups, in those um, trading groups, those future stock market trading groups, um, the guys were mentioning about property. You know, putting your money that you're making, that you, your income, and putting it into assets and parking into there because uh, the trading was good, good method bringing income in. Um, it could be um, a good wealth generator, but it's good to have some money in assets, right? And at, at that time, I said, "Yeah, well, that's a good idea." So I started reading property books, and and I read um, a heap of books, you know. Uh, then and then the mind game, mindset books, you know, Think and Grow Rich. And I started getting really passionate because I, you know, I was I, 
even from day one, I still had, like I said, I still had that wealth that I, I just wanted to be wealthy. You know, one day I, I knew that I wasn't going to work forever. And all these things I was interested in, I was interested in being a pilot, I was interested in uh, driving steam equipment and, and all that other stuff. But I, I knew that one day I'd be retired early because of my wealth. And so I'd always put some effort on the sidelines to read books, to, you know. And we did courses. Shell and I um, did some courses, um, you know, some small things there. And then we decided to buy some rentals. And that's what kicked it all off. So we bought some rentals. Um, bought, bought our first rental back in just right after the GFC, end of 08, start of 09. Bought our first unit in Sydney. Um, that was uh, in Lakemba in Sydney. Um, yeah, we picked that one up for a couple hundred thousand back then. We said, well, this is our plan. We're going to buy property and and then just buy another one and buy, build up a portfolio because that's all I knew at the time. I, everything I read was saying this is how you do it and um, and all our spare money, the money that I'd save because we were really good, we were pretty frugal at the time because living in a little town because Wheeler was a similar town where we used to, where I grew up, it was very, you know, there wasn't stuff to spend money on. You could you could just have a good time going camping, fishing, and you know, so you have a lot of disposable income. And um, we used to just pour our money into deposits for houses. And um, to speed it up, we thought, well, let's renovate because that's what we were reading, and that's what we, it made sense to us. So let's renovate. So Michelle done a Sherry Barber course. Um, come down to Sydney again and uh, did that and a lot of those things resonated with us and I, I did the course on the disc beside her as well as uh, to review it and uh, so we thought well we'd renovate lift the equity up in the property speed speed it up drag the money and back then straight even straight after GFC banks were quite liberal with them with lending it wasn't until later and as towards 10 and 11 when they started tightening and tightening. So we could still get money out. Um, so we, yeah, we've got a few properties. And what, what we'd do is we'd, mum and dad would come down, because I was still in Ingham at the time. I'd say, I'd ring up mum and say, we're buying a property um, next month, it's settling. We want to go down and renovate it, so see if they could come down and look after the kids for us. Because they're only, you know, five and three. And, uh, so they, yeah, all right. They come down. So Shell and I drive down or fly down wherever the properties were, and we'd renovate them, and we'd live in the house, live in the house that we we're doing up, and that wasn't pretty because there's dust everywhere and blow a blow up mattress and whatever. And we'd do the place up in three, four weeks. We had a few tradesmen to look after us, uh, you know, do the you know the electrical and the plumbing work, and Shell and I do the rest. Um, and that's where we cut our teeth in the renovating world. Once they started acquiring properties, they couldn't stop until suddenly they had to. The maximum was about 13. We got up to 13. I picked Doing that buy, buy, renovate and hold strategy, um, we picked up about 10 in six years, six, seven years. Yeah, it was quite quick time but then it came to a sudden halt <laughs> because we were the banks just shut shop 
but I just uh, you know had too much debt at that point. Although he's experienced the stress of having too much debt, his worst investment experience was actually due to a matter of circumstance. A house that we'd done up, it's beautiful, renovated house, um, and it, the contract crashed four times. Um, and and it's, it's looking back, it probably wasn't a big deal, but at the time it was because uh, every time we a person would buy it, it crashed because of uh, something minor in the building and pest um, or the finance, they couldn't get finance and, and it dragged out. So something that should have sold in a couple of weeks took like um, took about 18 weeks to sell in this current market, which is the market's quite hot. And and um, it's quite easy to to start worrying about things that aren't there, you know, um, creating things because we I had a good team, I had a great agent on board. He was doing the best he could, and it's just circumstances. Um, uh, yeah, so that and and but in the end, it sold. You know, the, the fourth buy come in, absolutely loved the place. Said, "Yep, this is for me." And and so, um, the the key point there was that we just didn't find the right buyer. All these all these building and pest and finances were just excuses for the buyer to pull out. I think, you know, and they weren't really keen on the house to, to start with. But when you buy a house and you lock it up for fourteen days or twenty one days for you to do your due diligence, um, you know, you lock the lock the seller in as well and you know you can't put it back on the market or well, no one's interested in it so to speak until that's over you know so um yeah so anything bigger than that i've had a few others but nothing major that i can think of um little things like that basically once a buyer has committed to purchasing you know both have agreed to exchange a contract to go in or not exchange but in the cooling off period it's basically those two weeks that is locked in and until they've made that final decision there's not much you can do so that's why i could potentially keep dragging on if they keep crashing the contract yeah and I mean, you can have a backup contract but buyers are reluctant to do that because uh you know it's it's you know, it's not there for them. It's not in the taking. You know, if they're really keen, yeah, but I found that a lot of boys rather move on and look for other houses than, than deal with that one. Selling the house took longer than usual but the renovation was pretty quick. This one took a while because we bought it just before Christmas and we were doing, um, we were doing a boarding house conversion at the time. We had all that tradesmen there. So we didn't have any spare guys and that, the tradesmen just went really busy leading up to the end of last year because of all the activity. And so and we said, well, well let's just go on holidays because we had enough for the year. Let's go on holidays. So we put it on hold and we finished it late February, so uh, mid-February. So it took us probably uh, about two months, that one there. Um, so I bought it. End of end of November, first week in December, and then it took us till mid February. By the time we got back, you know, got all the tradesmen back on board again. Um, yeah, and we had it on the market towards the end of February. Mm. And what was done to the property? Everything, the, the whole thing. Uh, it was in a big mess. The, the um, previous owners let it go, so we we just did two new bathrooms, kitchen floors paint throughout 
new fencing, landscaping outside the the back. The back had um, a big pool that was green, turtles and everything swimming in them, swimming in it, and um, piles of rubbish at the back. Um, it, it, I had to bring a, a mini excavator in to, to, to demolish the pool, but because there was so much rubbish there, we decided to get a, um, a big excavator, 20, a 20-ton excavator in there to do the job, which took us, it only took us a day to do. So he demolished the pool and, and cleaned up all the stuff and, and grabbed the rubbish and put it in the truck. That's <laughs> that much of it. There's about four trucks. Of rubbish got taken out. Um, yeah, that was a big job. And there was this carport, uh, carport, this uh, patio at the back. Um, home, home makeshift built. It was built by the previous owner and the cement. And because this excavator had to come in, we had to demolish that as well. So that added to the costs of the renovation because of, I had to replace all that. Um, so that was something we didn't see coming because we've already bought this place. So, um, yeah, so that added probably about $15,000 to the renovation. Um, but fortunately, the because the market is good, um, we picked it up on the other side, you know. He found the house through an agent and took it off the hands of a struggling couple. It's through an agent. And, um, yeah, so basically the, the owners had to get out. The bank was um, starting to become an issue for them and, and they said, well, we better sell before the bank takes over and sell. And uh, we were there and it, the place was such a mess. It was basically inhabitable. Um, it was pretty bad. And we went in with a cash offer and said, we'll, we'll buy it now. Because the, the actual the structure of the house was really good. We went up in the ceiling. I did all the inspections and up in the ceiling was great. Um there's no termites at all, surprisingly enough, with this one. Because <laughs> there's so much rubbish piled up on the outside of the house. They had entry point, yeah, so good. Everything there was good. Um, so, yeah, we could see the potential there. Castorina's plethora of life experience and property experience means he's both seen the good and bad side of the development world. Some experiences were so substantial, they completely changed his mindset. Well, it's all around mindset. I just recently listening to Bob Proctor, um, and he said, you know, you, you go in a in a building and you're from the bottom level, and you how far do you see, and then you go up to the next level, and you see a little bit further, and you keep you keep learning through your life, and the more you do, the more you can see. And and I um with with my um it's it's. Probably the biggest one was Landmark Forum back in um, three years ago. I did with with Young joining Young and doing his course. He he advocates going to Landmark, and that was a big eye opener for me. Um, it it I, I actually end up doing the whole course, the whole curriculum, and it's more about you know we we often think the world is. We're fixed and the world is malleable. Now we can change the world, but that showed me that the world is largely fixed and we're the ones that have to adapt. And and every day we have to adapt. You know, people talk to you and you react. Um, but that landmark forum really showed me 
who I am and how I am, how I present in the world. And so it's a really good thing to do. Um, we often uh, become a roadblock in ourselves, you know, our fears and the way we react to things in, in life. Um, and that's that's what opened me up. I mean, doing property and shares, do all that other stuff is, is, is just the doing bit, but learning about yourself is was really a big um, thing and, and it's constant learning. It's all the time. So I'd say that was probably the one of the biggest turning points there, yeah. Starting off with Renault's and then moving into subdivisions allow Castorina's company to grow steadily. Now they blend their workload together for maximum productivity. For the last three years, we've been doing, you know, averaging between six or eight projects a year. Um, and a blend of, we start off doing majority of renovations because that's what we were used to doing. And then I've been throwing in some subdivisions. I've been trying to build that business up. And now, so now it's like 50-50. So currently we um, we've got we're just finishing a Queenslander renovation in Brisbane. We're just about to put that on the market next week. I've got a three lot subdivision in the middle middle ring suburb in Brisbane. Um, that's sort of towards the end of it. I'm, I'm going to plan sealing now. All the all the blocks are sold. So it's just a matter of just doing the paperwork and getting the council to to stamp it and getting titles. Um, and I've got another project under contract that's an eight-lot subdivision that um, we're doing a pre-lodgement meeting next week with council to see if they will allow us to do what we want to do and if not, then how do they want to do it. Um, so hopefully that we can and iron out a lot of engineering issues with that to see if, you know, moving forward it's a it's a viable project. Um, yeah, and we, we just sold a few yeah, you know, like the one I told you about that pool, and that we just that that's settling in a couple of weeks, and um, yeah, so that's the current situation. While he tackles both subdivisions and Renos, he enjoys one more than the other. I, I like the subdivisions. My wife she, Michelle, she likes the Renos. I like the the Renos because of the cash flow, because you know that the one that pool house was too much normally we do them in four to six weeks with with they're finished and, and so that that income stream is good um you know subdivisions take a lot longer you get you get profits uh, you know 10 to 12 months apart but i, I like the subdivisions because they're, they're sort of more um uh I, I like that engineering side of things i like that um and i like finding them i like this you know, trying to design the, the blocks of land, how we're going to do it, and acquiring them. I like talking to people. I like meeting owners. At the start, I didn't. I was sort of a bit shy, but now I don't mind. I enjoy going to meet somebody and seeing if we can strike a deal together. You know, have a win-win for both of us. So, all that stuff. Yeah. Castorino needs structure and organisation when working on a project. This justifies his favouritism of subdivisions over Renaults. Renault's are like driving a, a speed, a race car. You know, it's like everyone there, you need you know, the guy to change the wheels. You know, everyone's got to be there on time. Otherwise, it doesn't happen, you'll lose. Uh, whereas subdivisions are uh, slow, but you know, it's like driving a, you know, one of those um, ferries across Manly there, you know, steady, steady. So, um, not, not to say that you can make errors, but it's a more slow moving process. 
Um, however, you can still make mistakes, and 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 usually, it, it, I, I'd say, um, for me, I've made heaps of them so far. It's it's not not planning ahead, so not looking into the future and saying I'm going to need this guy. So let's let's organise him and so forth. Or it could be just a, a mistake that nobody's seen that it's a um, an engineering issue. The, the sewer line is lower than what it was meant to be or we've got to do something bigger like you know put up a retaining wall or lift the block up to get the sewer down so those things are none of no one can see potentially early so they're more costly errors you know whereas a renovation we can we can stuff up on a reno and it might only cost us five grand but uh, a subdivision you could stuff up and it could cost you 50 or 100 you know so um, that's the difference but the rewards are much bigger. A recent subdivision he did was an unfinished mansion that he managed to get his hands on. The amount of work it needed was almost unbelievable for the developer yet he managed to make a huge profit out of someone else's mistakes. So basically purchased it through a um, directly bought it through an owner directly so I sent a letter out I got a phone call the, the owner sounded interested in doing a having a chat further so I went to his place and we had a chat and um, found out what they wanted it's sort of roughly where I wanted to be too so um, we, we struck a deal I found out what he wanted he wanted a quick settlement didn't want too much messing around so I gave him that and I said oh, I just needed uh, a week and a half two weeks to do some DD on the site due diligence and I uh, went to the the consultants, the town planner, the engineer, and found out it was all good to go. I did redone my FISO and um, renegotiate a little bit less because I had a few road crossings to send water across the road, and it was going to cost another twenty grand. Uh, settled on that property, big house, uh, twelve hundred square meter lot, um, big house on it that was basically unlivable. It was built, but they didn't finish it. It was all just, um, and they actually built it over the top of a, a three-bed, one-bath house. So they built this like, I don't know how many bedrooms. I, it, I didn't take notice of the plans, but it looked like a ten-bedroom house. By the size of it, it's it massive, like six hundred square meter house, uh, it, half the site. And he built it over the top of another house, and then the the, the owners that I bought it off. Um, stripped that house inside, took that, demolished that house and took it out steady, steady like that and left left the shell of the new house and their plan was to do it up, you know, finish it, you know, so sheet the walls and finish the plumbing and whatever, fit it out. But they, uh, they, they must have run out of money. They couldn't afford to do it anymore because it's massive. It would cost, I did the numbers and it, I brought some carpenters and builders over there and they said at least 400000 to do this place, get it back to what it should be. So that was off the cards. Uh, so, yeah, so demolished that. Um, that that was flattened in a matter of hours. How much do you think that house would have been worth in itself? To build, that, that was a massive house. Um, to build that, that would have spent at least two 300000 on it because it was, it's all brand new, brand new iron roof. How did you feel when you looked at it and went, wow, this is a brand new house? Obviously, it's going to cost 400000 to continue to work on it, but still, it just feels like a complete waste to demolish something like that. 
Yeah, it's a shame. Could could you have even lift it up and sold it to someone else? No, no, no. It was just it it it, the, it wasn't sealed, so all the timbers were still there, so it wouldn't have needed reframing, I'd say. And and having all that timber exposed there for all that amount of years uh, wasn't doing it any good. And and the fact that the plumbing there was no there's no paperwork, so. You know, when you build a house, you've got to go through stages of certification. You know, the, the subfloor, the foundation, the plumbing. Make sure that all the all the protrusion has got uh, white ant um, protection. We we couldn't find any of that paperwork, so essentially we would have had to jackhammer all the cement, which was as like six hundred square meters of it, and uh, redo all the plumbing work because you couldn't prove to the next buyers that. It was protected, so yeah, it was another thing. But all the all the neighbours said, "Oh, what a shame! What a shame!" But a lot of them said it was just standing there for years and years. No one was doing anything for it, so it's better getting three new houses up there. So, and that's what we did. So we sub- subdivided into three blocks. Um, it, because it was sloped down to the back, about a meter, just under a meter to to the corner, we had to. Um, raise, raise, bring in a lot of fill and raise the back up so all the water, the stormwater would run to the front where it's meant to on the on the verge and the gutter, and that re- requires um, retaining walls on either side. So the civil bill was about ninety thousand between connecting the sewers to the three blocks or providing sewers, uh, water, retaining wall and fill, some fencing. Um, yeah. So that's it. And now, so now we're in uh, uh, what do you call it? as as constructed drawings. They've they've just been completed. So you 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 basically go and get a DA. You um, get that approved. You um, get the drawings done by the engineer. They, they they we then construct according to those drawings, and then we've got to prove that we constructed to those drawings. So we get some drawings, and then those drawings are now. Going with the engineer, they'll they'll sign off on it, and then we'll send all that all those documents, all that evidence to the council to show that we've completed to the according to their conditions. And that's called plan sealing, and and then we'll go for titles, which I expect July, and then the owners will take over. They'll how much did you purchase this block for? All, all those kind of things. So um, purchased for four four thirty, four hundred thirty thousand. Um, hang on, can we, can I bring this up? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. This is exciting. This is what I like to hear. Because <laughs> if you said it's 90000 to do the civils, I'm curious now, you know, how much each block would have been sold for roughly and then rough estimates, you know. I've got it here. Now I've got exact here for you. Um, so 430 to buy. Um, the the construction cost 228 So the 90 was part of that. All the rest is consultants and um, and the blocks sold for three fifteen, three twenty, three forty. So a total of nine seventy five, right? And so profit after holding costs of about fifty k and GST of about forty, um, one hundred seventy. That's fantastic. Over what period? Ten months. That's great. That's a very good profit. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's a good one, and it was easy too. Like I, I done a similar one like this last year. Same thing, sloping, all the similar same um, engineering things, and uh, so I was used to it, and it was easy to do. Yeah, so 
The biggest challenge I think a lot of people come and talk about when they're looking for blocks to subdivide as a developer is to actually find these blocks because if you understand the concepts of doing it, it's actually a process and you just follow that step by step but the challenge is finding it. Is that what you found as well to be the the biggest? Oh, that's the biggest, yeah, finding them. The ones that stack up and I mean there's there's so many on the market that none of them stack up, especially on realestate.com. None of them stack up, and to try and find that needle in the haystack is difficult. So it's, it's a lot of work, you know, a lot of work to do that. In some markets, finding a property like that could take months. He explains how you could feasibly do it depending on your schedule. Well, I, I think it's it dependent on market too. By the way, I mean, you know, some markets are quicker than others. I, I think good twelve months at least. At least, and 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 look at hundreds and hundreds of sites. Um, so so and that so, twelve months is someone full time. So if you're doing it part time, I mean, if you got to look at, say, um, five hundred sites before you get one, and if you can only look at ten a week, yeah, you know, it's it's a lot. Yeah, you know, so, um, you know, it depends on how much time you have, but I, I'd say. At least 12 months unless you're really lucky, yeah. Luckily for Castorina, he's built a team that helps with developments so he doesn't spend months at a time searching for deals. Yeah, I've got a guy working. He's, he's really good. Um, so he's looking and he, I, I do, I talk to agents and um, I, I do deal directly with agents and he, he sort of goes directly with landowners. So we've got sort of a blend happening um, and I've got a team of um, um, three girls working for me that do the research. So we'll look at sites and uh, do the, the groundwork, just just looking at, you know, contours and flooding and all that sort of stuff. So I'm, I'm not looking at the wrong sites in the first place, you know, because I send letters out too. I don't want to send letters to a site that's fully flooded. Of course, yeah. So it's very, very targeted. So you've actually already pre-planned where you're going to be even sending out the letters, because otherwise you, you're just basically blanketing out letters to people who might not be interested, and it just becomes a waste. So you're really, really targeted exactly where you're you're really wanting these blocks for. Or, or you send letters to an owner that never gets letters, and you'll get the phone call straight away. Yeah, I'm interested in selling, but it's it's like three meters underwater. So. <laughs> And, and it's not a site that you can develop, so you're just wasting everybody's time. You know? It's it's freedom. It's um. It's it's a feel, it's a feeling of freedom. So I, I can you know when you when you're working the the hours of and the holidays are fixed. You know you can only go away when when the the boss tells you you can go away. Now, basically, we, we do what we choose. We, if we want to go away next week, we can't. Um, so that's one. I'm home all the time. Um, this is, sometimes Shell says I'm home too much. but <laughs> It could be a good thing, you know, especially COVID, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, it's all the little things, um, you know, that we've got money now because it's, it's, to me, uh, the amount of money I earn it depends on how much work I put in. You know, so if I put more work, and so that money, I can use it. If we want to go on a holiday, we can. And and if I want to donate it, I can. And so there's freedom of what we do with with our money. And and there's things like, and then I'm meeting, 
I'm, I'm, I'm involved with a lot of wonderful people that I've, uh, you know, getting all these new ideas, you know, with, you know, new charities, different businesses, all that sort of stuff. So it's, yeah, it's great because you're in a great environment. Um, so, yeah, and I'm always evolving. You know, I'm not the same person I was last year. So it's just, uh, yeah, you grow as, as you go. Castorina believes he's constantly growing and changing. So, how did he develop that mindset to begin with? He credits some of his evolution to his favorite books. I like all the Rob Moore books. Um, if I can, I got one here. I think. No, I don't. No, I don't have it there. But um, any book by Rob Moore is really good. Um, yeah, the the um, Stephen Covey's book. You know, the six. Uh, Seven Habits of uh, Highly Successful People. Um, any of uh, Kiyosaki's books are great. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm reading some autobiographies now. I'm reading Branson stuff at the moment. That, that's pretty good. Uh, yeah, there, there's heaps. Oh, I'm reading all the time, and you have to. And every time I read the book, I read it from a different angle. So um, yeah, all that stuff. Um, Actually, one I just read recently, which is really great. Um, I've only got it on Kindle, but a guy called Naval Ravikant. He's a he's a he's an angel investor over in the states, and he's really good. Um, you read his material, um, really good stuff. Yeah, what what's that book about? The and what's it called? It's um, the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. It's, it sounds like a very interesting book to read. I have to pick it up. I always love hearing some new titles, especially people's autobiographies. You know, I've been reading a lot, like um, yeah, Phil Phil Knight's one with Nike. You know, um, Richard Branson's ones. I just love all these autobiographies because it really goes to show, I guess, a bit of backstory behind how they achieved their success and built those large companies. Yes, yeah, that's good, and it gives you inspiration. A man as interesting as Castorina must find inspiration from an even more interesting person. Refreshingly, Castorina believes that the best inspiration comes from within oneself. I think, um, and it comes from everybody. Young keeps saying to me or reminding me all the time, but it's it's always looking within. You know, always, if there's a problem, it's always here. I'm creating the problem. So, um you know, we, we, we only perceive the world through our own belief system, you know, our own fears and whatever. So, and you might, we might have the same situation and you and I might see it totally different ways. I might react and you feel scared and you might say, this is great. And it's just because we perceive it because of our belief system. So if something's bothering you, it's because of us, you know. Um, um, and it, it, I get told every day, you know, young keep saying to me, you know, yeah, you're your own worst enemy. So, yeah, I think that's, that's, I think if you can be self-aware and look at, look at yourself from outside, look how you react and look at your thoughts all the time, you'll realise that, um, yeah, that off, you're often wrong. Um, you know, it's, it's not, the, it's not the other person's fault. It's not the other, what's not what happened. Um, that's the problem. It's interesting just to hear that perspective because if you, I guess, take a step back and think about it, it it's not always uh, right or wrong. It's about perception of whatever it is and that perception is, you know, it could be different for everyone and depending on who you are and who you, you know, perceive and so forth could be 
thinking it could be right or wrong you know it's um i guess a good another example i'm thinking of is maybe like when you're got something that you don't want it's rubbish and you want to chuck it out but you put it onto like you know gum tree or ebay and people find it's a treasure it's like that kind of thing because you don't think oh you know i don't need it anymore that person might love, love it <laughs> it's exactly like that in property you know somebody really desperately doesn't want this house anymore because it's a trouble for them but we pick it up because <laughs> it's extremely profitable for us as developers exactly everyone's a different spot if castorina could travel back in time and speak to that little boy who grew up in a small town surrounded by cane fields and daydreaming about planes what would he say to him? Stop worrying about the future. Stop worrying about the future and relax. You know, I was, I was, I'm always 100, 100 mile an hour. That's how I was even from school. I was always got to do this, got to do this. Just relax. It's, it's going to be okay. Yeah, you know? uh, it's going to be okay because it does. It will always work. It always works out. You keep working at something, it'll work out. So yeah, definitely. Looking forward to the future, what is he most excited about in the next five years? Um, travel, when we can do it, <laughs> when we can do it. Um, I like to build a business up a little bit more to a point where I, where I want it to be and have a little bit, a few more staff in it so I'm sort of less required, so to speak, so it'll run less with me. Um, yeah, and then, and then travel. So I want to, I want to spend... My, my oldest son is sort of starting to leave the nest. He's sort of he's 18 and he's spending less and less time. So I want to, you know, let's take you to places and let's do as many, you know, give him as much experience as we can, spend as much time together, that sort of stuff. And, and yeah, there's heaps of things, but they're the main ones, yeah. And last question for you, Alan, as well, is how much of your success that you've achieved along your journey is due to intelligence, hard work and skill and how much of it would you say is luck? I think you create the luck. Um, and luck, I think there's the luck is um, uh, in, actually in that book, he says it, the same thing. It, luck, you know, if, 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 you just, um, you, if you just turn up one day and that owner wants to sell the house for you cheap, that's luck, but if if I put a thousand offers in and I went and look at a thousand houses, and that on, on the last day of the year I had I got a owner that wants to sell the house to me, and you say, "Oh, you're just lucky," but no, I did all that work leading up to it. So it's 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 action, you know. I, I don't think you have to be super intelligent to do this. You you know you have to be uh, have a wits and but have. A, just just do stuff just do stuff all the time be nice to people be honest um always look for win-win you know you'll help the next person out let the let the money flow through you to other people so um all that stuff is more important than than i think intelligence but and just doing stuff doing stuff all the time and luck will happen you know you do it long enough and you'll get lucky every now and then so yeah, I think it's just all about the preparation is, is what you're saying. You know, once you're prepared, the opportunity arises in front of you and because you're prepared, luck strikes it. And, and getting the right people around, you know, like young, getting people there and and you rub shoulders together, get some information, you know, share um, and you use other people to, to help you and, and then you help other people and, you know, it, that's where it happens.
Thank you to Alan Castorina, our guest on this episode of Property Investory.